Oh, good morning, Freedom Church. Isn't it good when God shows up? That's a trick question. He's always here. But isn't it good when we tune in to what God is doing with us? So, um, it's been half term this week. Uh, you know, just pop my Bible over here. And I love half term uh, because it means I get to spend more time with my wonderful, crazy children. Ryan's smiling because he knows it's true. Um, my kids are brilliant. Uh, I know every, every parent thinks that, but my kids are just brilliant. They're funny, they're kind, and I really cherish the extra time uh, that I get with them during the school holidays. Of course, like all kids, they need a lot of entertaining, especially Beth, who's always asking what we're doing next. Um, so this week has been a week full of activities. Uh, we've made cakes, we have made uh, bases and forts, we've been on multiple bike rides. Um, one day this week, I took the kids to a trampoline park in Ellesmere Port called Freedom, which, by the way, as Freedom Church, we still get people calling up to book in for a one-hour bounce. I've, I've, I've suggested coming to the prayer meeting, but that's not what they had in mind. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, but on Thursday, I decided to take the kids uh, to one of my favorite places in the whole world. Um, I took them to climb Molvama. So Molvama is, is a mountain near Mold. It's the highest peak in the Cluidian range. Um, I, I didn't know that, but I googled it just out of interest. Um, and on a sunny day like Thursday was, it's just a beautiful place to be. And as we climbed, we talked and we laughed and we found nice big sticks uh, on the side of the track that we could use as walking sticks. It felt very biblical. Um, and as we were there walking along very biblically with our biblical sticks, um, last week's sermon popped into my head. And you know, all of a sudden I found myself imagining what torture it would be to climb that mountain knowing that I wouldn't be coming down with one of my children. that I would have to sacrifice one of them on the top. I suddenly felt the reality of last week's passage snap into sharp and painful focus, especially when you consider that most theologians consider Isaac's age would have been somewhere between 10 and 25, so that puts both of my children in the right age bracket. And I gained a fresh appreciation not only of the scale of what God was asking of Abraham, but of the incredible scale of Abraham's faith. The certainty he must have had that God had indeed spoken to him, and the logical impossibility of what God was commanding him to do. After all, God had told him that Isaac was the miraculous son through which Abraham's descendants would be multiplied. But how could his faith in God's promise coexist with his obedience in God's obedience to God in sacrificing Isaac. It's like being told to trust that this candle will never go out and then being told immediately to blow it out. And yet, Abraham's faith was so great and he was so obedient that he chose to put his faith in the God of the promise and not the substance of the promise. He didn't know why or how God would do what he said he would do, uh, but he did know that when God says something, it will come to pass when we respond in obedience. As Keith pointed out last week, the writer of Hebrews tells us that, it is his trust in, that his trust in God was so great 
that he reasoned that even if he did kill Isaac, God would raise him from the dead. I can tell you, as I was climbing up that mountain this week with my two precious children, I examined my heart and I couldn't imagine myself having faith like Abraham in that circumstance. Abraham's obedience in the in the face of the destruction of not only his beloved son, naturally speaking, but the end also of his family line altogether, it's breathtaking. It's something that we should look to as an example of great faith, as scripture encourages us to. Praise God. Abraham's hand was stayed, and the life of Isaac was preserved by God's provision of a sacrificial lamb caught in the thorn bush. Abraham's faith was rewarded by God's mercy and his provision. I can only imagine the weeping and the rejoicing, the laughter and the gratitude and the relief that must have washed over Abraham and Isaac like a tsunami in that moment. Embracing each other and praising God on the mountaintop before descending along the same path that had been so recently full of fear but faith as well. They were now filled with joy and assurance that God's promises are greater than any circumstance. And this is where we find ourselves today. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 to 24. So I'm reading from the the New Living Translation. Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says, because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son. I swear by my own name, I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then they returned to the servants and traveled back to Beersheba, where Abraham continued to live. Soon after this, Abraham heard of, that Milcah, his brother Nahor's wife, had borne Nahor eight sons. The eldest name was Uz. The next oldest was Buzz followed by Kemuel, the ancestor of the Arimatheans, Chesed, Hasso, Pildash, Gildaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. In addition to these eight sons from Milcah, Nahor had four other children from his concubine, Reumah. Their names were Tabar, Geum, Tanash, and Micah. That's the first time I got through reading that without stumbling over those names. Oh, yeah. No, no, don't applause. It's fine. <laughs> All right, I'm getting heckled by my son now. <laughs> so let's look at this. So starting at verse 15, see the first thing we see here is the reference to the angel of the Lord. See, there's some debate, as there always is in matters where these things aren't explicitly said in Scripture, about whether the angel of the Lord refers to an angel speaking on behalf of the Lord Um, or whether it's a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus. And because scripture doesn't explicitly state it, I'm not going to spend much time worrying about it. Um, However, to my mind, this person 
uh, be them angel or God <laughs> incarnate, uh, is speaking for and as God, with the authority of God. So it seems to me that this could well be Jesus himself, beforeing, appearing before his physical birth many, many years later. But let's put that to one side and let's look again at what he says to Abraham. Because you have obeyed me and not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Isn't God poetic? Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All because you have blessed me. See, God restates his promises. He's already made them a number of times in his dealings with Abraham. But this time, he does something different and quite remarkable in response to Abraham's obedience. Something that he's not done up to this point. He says, because you have obeyed me and you have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name. God swears an oath. As if the word of God isn't enough, he, has swore, he swears an oath by his own name. And in doing so, he adds all of his divine weight to what he's about to say. This is, this is something new. Up to this point, whenever God spoke to Abraham about the covenant between them and how God would bless him, he had never used a phrase as strong as this. See, in Abraham's time, oath-taking was a common and significant practice. So they didn't have the same kind of uh, robust legal system as we do. They didn't have um, contracts. They were nomadic farmers and sheep herders. They wouldn't know what to do with one even if they had it. They wouldn't have been able to read it. So when significant deals were done or important promises were to be made, they would make an oath by swearing to something higher than themselves appealing to a greater power to keep them accountable. Even now, in our society, we still do this. Before giving testimony in a court of law, we're required to swear to tell the truth with our hand on the Bible. Because in appealing to something higher than ourselves, or something precious to us, we're implying that any failure to fulfill our promise not only disgraces us, but invalidates the worth of the things we hold sacred. So when God swears by himself, he is saying that this promise that he has made to Abraham is so secure that he will swear by his own divine credibility. This is, the great, is a great, great assurance for anyone. Topped only by one, but we'll come to that later. The writer of Hebrews gives us the only commentary we really need on this oath when it says in chapter 6 there was God's promise to Abraham since there was no one greater to swear by God took an oath in his own name saying I will certainly bless you and I will multiply your descendants beyond number then Abraham waited patiently and he received what God had promised spoiler alert now when people take an oath they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it and without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath, so that those who received the promise 
could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. This is phenomenal. But there is something important that we can't get away from here. Right before God does this amazing thing, we read that he's making this oath because of Abraham's obedience. Well, does, does that mean that God's blessing is transactional? You know, is, isn't this works theology? You know, if I do this, then God does that. You know, if I, if I type in the right number, then the thing I'm asking for comes out the vending machine. No, not at all. God's promise to Abraham was firmly established before it even reached Abraham's ears. God's action here isn't about firming up a loose promise, but it's an act of grace and great assurance. It's to bless Abraham in response to his obedience. You see, when God makes a promise over us, he will increase our blessing and grow our faith and confidence as we respond in the measure of faith he has given us. It's like moving towards a light. The closer towards the light you get, the more you can see. Abraham hasn't earned more of God's blessing, but he's stepped deeper into the blessing that he has already been promised as he responds to God's lead. You know, our God is a God of increase. He, in his eternal nature, he is ever increasing. Every time we think that we have grasped the fullness of who he is, he reveals how much greater and how much more wonderful and beyond our understanding he is. One thing we do know is that he delights to bring increase. He delights to bring fruitfulness in his people, who, after all, we are made in his image. Scripture is full of evidence of this promise. And when we remain, that when we remain in right relationship with him, he loves to and he will bring about fruitfulness and flourishing in our lives. Not in, the, not in some kind of twisted prosperity gospel way. You know, where if, if you really love God and if you really trust him, then you'll get a Mercedes and you'll get a nice new house and you'll get all these things that you want. That's not what we're saying. God can provide those things. He can do that. But it's not a transactional certainty. That's not who God is. We cannot twist God's arm into blessing us. We can only press into the blessing he has already promised us. And trust me, when we do that, it's far greater than anything we could ever even imagine to twist his arm for. See, right at the beginning, we can see God's delight in our multiplication. He says, so in, in Genesis, he blesses Adam and Eve, and he, the first thing he tells them to do is be fruitful and multiply. In John 15, 16, we read, did you, not, you, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whenever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Galatians 5, 22, but the fruit of the Spirit. This is promised to us as we press into God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. It just keeps on going and keeps on growing. John 15, 15, I am the vine 
and you are the branches if you remain in me and I in you you will bear much fruit even in his dealings with Abraham God was continually expanding on his promises as Abraham trusted God and responded in faith so right at the call of Abraham Genesis 12 the, the promises he made were I will make you a great nation I will bless you I will bless others and I will give you land Genesis 13, he adds, I will give you descendants like the dust of the earth. Genesis 15, he says, I will give you descendants like the stars in heaven. He says, I will protect you. Ishmael will not be the son of promise. You will have a miraculous son through Sarah. Genesis 17, he says, I will make you not just a great nation, which, which he promised in, in Genesis 12. He expands on it again. He says, I will make you the father of many great nations. I will make your descendants fruitful. Your descendants will include kings. I will also be your God, and, and I will be your descendants' God. See, the promises continue to just become bigger and greater as he gets closer and closer to God. So it should come as no surprise that when God restates his blessings here in verses 17 and 18, he increases Abraham's vision again. And once more, he illuminates the expansive nature of his blessing. <clears throat> I will certainly bless you. So as many of the great ancient cities were, the gates were not simply uh, the point of entrance and exit for the city. This is where the elders would sit. It would be the seat of authority, of justice, as well as a place of security. Whoever held the gates of the city held the city. They decided who would be allowed in, who would be uh, forced out. They, they decided what was acceptable, what was not, who would be rewarded, and who would be banished. And whilst this promise has a literal interpretation for Abraham's descendants in terms of, of, of conquering the promised land, I also believe it had a spiritual one for them too, and a spiritual one for us as well. Spiritually, we as believers have been freed from the bondage of sin. And through the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus, we now sit at the gate of our hearts, unchained. We have been set free from the condemnation of sin and death to rule over our lives, to sit at the gate of our heart with a God-given authority and in submission to Christ. We now through his Holy Spirit, have the power and the authority to decide what we allow in and what, what we watch, what we read, uh, what or who we allow to influence our thinking, how we spend our time, what thoughts we choose to dwell on. But unlike Abraham, because of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit, Spirit dwelling within us. The Spirit of God himself dwells within the city walls of your heart. What kind of a city are you building? Are you building a city that is fit for a king? Through Christ Jesus, we too now share in God's promises to Abraham. Let's continue. Verse 18. <clears throat> and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All because you have obeyed me. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Wow. 
Abraham had no idea what this would mean exactly, but, but we know that the whole story of the Bible testifies to this staggering truth. Through the family line of this nomadic sheep herder who had nothing but faith, God himself would be our savior and born as a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And in him, all the sin of the world would be destroyed. The power of death would crumble and salvation would be made available to all humanity and all who dare to repent and call him Lord can be restored to right relationship with God. Amen. Adopted into his royal family and made co-heirs with Christ. Make no mistake, the blessing that would come through Abraham's faith and obedience is the reason I am able to stand here this morning. It is the reason we are able to stand here as a body of people who would probably not have, not there's, there's so many people who I would probably never have met if it weren't for Christ. And yet I look out here and I see brothers and sisters. He is the reason we are able to cry out, Abba, Father. But what's the application here for us? Yes, we are evidence of God's blessing over Abraham. We have been blessed through Abraham's obedience, but that was Abraham and we're us. Is it possible that in our faith and in our obedience to God, he can use us to bless the generations to come? Well, I believe so. I'm going to tell you a little story about my great-great-aunt Sarah. My great-great-aunt Sarah, I might just say great-aunt just to save some time, um, grew up in a workhouse in Stoke-on-Trent after she'd been crippled by her drunk father who threw her against the wall as a baby. Over time, she recovered her ability to move relatively freely. And the Christian doctor who would often come and visit the workhouse came to know her quite well. Sometime later, the doctor, a wonderful man named Dr. Field, uh, he took her out of the workhouse and gave her a position as a servant in his own home, where he treated her kindly and led her to the Lord. As Dr. Field's medical practice became more successful and grew, he moved the entire household and his practice, including my Aunt Sarah, down to Harley Street in London. My great Aunt Sarah still had plenty of mobility issues from her childhood, so rather than keep her working as a general servant, which would have been quite taxing, um, she ended up becoming a lady's companion for one of Dr. Field's friends, for the wife of one of, of Dr. Field's friends. Sarah served this lady faithfully until the day she passed away, at which point the widowed husband married my great aunt Sarah. And when he died, she was the sole beneficiary of his shipping line company in Ramsgate Harbor. She'd gone from abused child to workhouse, to the workhouse, to serving a doctor, to a lady's companion, to the wife of a millionaire, to being a millionaire in her own right. She could quite easily have lived out her days in wealth and comfort, either on her own or with one of the many eligible men who would be surely looking to marry a millionaire. But she felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
to renounce her claim to the fortune and leave all of that wealth to her late husband's children. And she did. She chose to obey God. She left London. She returned to Stoke-on-Trent to the very same cottage she was thrown out of as a child. And of course, by this point, a whole new generation of her relatives were living there, but they took her in. And she spent the rest of her life there, where she would sit and play with her nieces and nephews, and where she would lead each and every one of them to know the Lord. One of those little children who met Jesus sat on great aunt Sarah's knee was my grandma, my grandma Joan, who would go on to lead my father to the Lord, who would go on to lead me to the Lord with my mom. And I've had the privilege of bringing both of my children to know Christ. See, my great aunt Sarah may not be the instrument of God's blessing to the whole world, but I stand here today as a testimony to the way that God has brought great blessing through her because of her obedience. Not just her either. either. I, I owe a great debt to Dr. Field. And neither of them had any idea of how God would amplify their simple act of obedience and use it to transform and redeem every subsequent generation of the Brown family. Not just that, but to bless countless others who have come into contact uh, with the gospel because of that. Brothers and sisters, obedience is not always a joy. But when God gives us an opportunity to choose his way or our way, obedience will always result in blessing and a joy far greater than we could ever have imagined. And it's often in ways far greater than we will ever comprehend. <laughs> My great aunt Sarah died in that cottage with the joy of knowing that she had brought all these children to the Lord. She had no idea that decades, decades later, there would be a legacy of faith that traces back to her. Let's not be short-sighted in our, obedi our obedience to God. And just as Abraham had no idea that all these thousands of years later, we would be standing here thanking God for the blessing we received through his faith and obedience, we cannot underestimate or limit the effect of submitting our lives and our wills to God in obedience. Like Abraham, we have to choose to trust in the God of the promise and not worry about the substance of the promise. If God has spoken to you, then he will do what he has said. There is no limit, there is no time limit on the trustworthiness of God. It may not happen the way you expect it or in the time frame you would like it. It was 30 years between God telling Abraham you'd have a son and Isaac being born. And it was another 10 to 25 years later before this final confirmation of that promise. Yet Abraham took God at his word and he trusted him. He made plenty of mistakes along the way. 
and he tried to force things to happen outside of God's perfect timing. But his faith was credited to him, credited to him as righteousness. And he, has faith, and he faithfully pressed into the promises of God. I wonder how many of us in this room have forgotten some of the promises of God over our lives. Prophetic words that we've given up on because they didn't fit into our expected time frame or take the form that we expected them to. God doesn't make promises he will not keep. And we can read plenty of those promises in Scripture. In verse 19, we see uh, Abraham and Isaac returning to the servants before heading home to Beersheba. <clears throat> His servants weren't with him. What had just happened was a private exchange between him and God. You know, obedience <clears throat> isn't always dramatic. In fact, it's often an intimate thing between us and God. Abraham had deliberately made space to respond to God and to hear clearly for his direction. Is that something we're doing in our lives? Are we making space to hear from God? Last week, Keith urged us to spend time in Scripture and be ready to hear God speak. I urge you again, open up the life-giving Word of God and invite Him to speak to you. Remind yourselves of the promises of God by reading his word and asking for his Holy Spirit to call to mind the things he has spoken over you. Find some time this afternoon. Open up your phone or your laptop and search God's promises over me. Okay? If you, if, if you don't know where to look in your Bible, use the internet, search God's promises over me, get your Bible out and look up the various passages and take ownership of what God has promised over you. Then pray for boldness and decide to live like you believe those promises. Sometimes we have to choose to live like we believe those promises if it's a difficult thing for us to believe, but that's not wrong, that's obedience. We can move in obedience even when our faith isn't where it should be. Don't beat yourself up because what you read in Scripture is difficult to believe about yourself. But choose to live like you do, and God will reveal that to you. Spend time in his word. Pray for boldness and live like you believe those promises, because if God said it, it is secure. Abraham, God, God swore by himself to Abraham. That was an oath of words. In Christ, we are secure in an oath secured by blood. Christ came and shed his blood to secure our freedom, to secure our salvation, to open the doors for us to move into God's blessing. And just as Abraham was promised that, that his descendants would take possession of the gates of their enemies, we are told that the gates of hell will not stand. In the last few verses of this chapter, 
You know, it seems like a bit of an odd anticlimax, like this list of names, you know, almost like the kind of detail that really doesn't need to be there, except that there is one name in the family of Nahor that is deeply significant, Rebecca. Rebecca, who would become Isaac's wife. You see, God had already prepared a wife for this son who Abraham was ready to kill. Isn't that just God's way? He goes before us and prepares the path of his blessing in advance. All we need to do is submit to him and press in. So Freedom Church, I challenge you to take a moment of silence with me in just a moment. In your mind's eye, come to the cross and repent of any sin you have allowed into the city walls of your heart. Surrender the gates to the king. Ask his Holy Spirit to call to mind his promises to you. Ask him to speak to you today, to guide you and to lead you in ways of righteousness. Pray for the strength and the boldness to walk in obedience. Thank him for his love and his grace and ask him to increase your faith so that you can walk like Abraham in obedience and blessing. I'm just going to take a moment now. Lord, speak. Holy Spirit, break in. Lord, we don't want to leave this place the same way we arrived. Lord, give us ears to hear and soft hearts. Lord, give us a passion for those who do not know you and give us the boldness to step forward when you say step. Thank you, Lord, for you, your blessing is, becomes more and more apparent to us as we press into you. Lord, thank you for the great assurance of the cross. May we love you this week. May we protect our hearts. Lord, let the city of our heart be a city worthy of a king. Lord, through our grace-driven effort, and your incredible, matchless grace. 